0: Um maybe can you just to start out introduce yourself and sort of how, you know, like what's what's it say on your business card?
1: <laughs> who has business cards anymore? Um, <laughs> my name is Emma Maris and I am a environmental writer and I am most interested in um when there are tensions between two people who two groups who think they're on the same side.
0: Emma Maris is one of my heroes in journalism land. She writes things that I wish I were smart enough to write and publishes them in all of the coolest magazines. She also wrote a great book, which you should read, Rambunctious Garden, Saving Nature in a Post-Wild World. And for the story that I wanted to talk to her about, she went to Australia.
1: It's kind of the world's smallest continent and the world's largest island, which means it sort of has the environmental problems of continents and of islands. So the sort of classic island- conservation problem is exotic species that show up and rearrange everything in ways that then threaten the native species.
0: Australia's ground zero for insane stories of invasive species. You might have heard of cane toads. We've talked about them on this podcast. But there are also non-native horses and camels and rabbits. And for this story, we're most interested in cats and foxes. Which were introduced to the continent by Europeans,
1: and um, they just went gangbusters because, ugh, sort of, a really common type of animal in Australia is a small furry animal. <laughs> like that's there's just a lot. There's many, many dozens of little marsupial and rodents that are snackable for foxes and cats. There's bilbies, which, um, you know, uh, there's numbats, which are really a stick nest rat, which sounds horrible, but it's actually super cute. These Australian cute and fuzzies, they evolved in a world where their major predators were thin on the ground and, and some of them were extinct thousands of years ago. And a lot of times they're mostly worried about eagles, not ground predators. And they're just extremely susceptible to getting killed by these things. So I've seen some data some papers showing that you can put one cat in some vast e- enclosure with you know thousands of bilbies and if you come back a couple months later there's there's no more bilbies like the ca- one cat will have eaten all of them
0: In North America the game of cat and mouse is pretty even our small mammals do a pretty good job of hiding and running from their predators but cats in Australia are like Kryptonians, supercharged by the Earth's sun. They are transformed into super cats.
1: Yeah, and they're, oh my god, they're huge. Like, the, you're out there in the desert, It's it seems like there's nothing to eat, there's hardly any water, the, the Earth is kind of red, you feel like you're on Mars, and then you come around a corner and there's like the biggest, fattest cat you've ever seen in your life that looks like... Some old lady left her estate to it. Um, So it's they they are really good at what they do out there.
0: The traditional answer that conservation biologists have given to problems like this one is to try to turn back the clock to the time before cats arrived. Kill all the cats, or at least as many as you can.
1: So recently, the Australian government actually uh, sort of Put out an official pronouncement that they were going to kill two million cats. I think it was, um, it, you know, and I think they just kind of made that number up. Um, <laughs> and and then some. When I was like, "Well, how is that going? How many of the two million cats have you killed?" They weren't really able to tell me, but they were like, "Lots," you know. We're 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 killing lots of cats.
0: This is Outside In, a show about the natural world and how we use it. I'm Sam Evans-Brown. Killing animals to save animals. In our quest to save endangered species, we kill a lot of common species. For some conservationists, it seems like almost no price is too much to pay to keep a species from being snuffed out. But today, we're talking to Emma Maris about the ethical morass this practice gets us into. When it comes to unscrewing up habitats that we've screwed up, What's okay and what's not.
1: So, you know, I've been covering conservation for many, many years, and in recent years, I got more and more interested in this side of it—the this, this kind of killing side of it. Um, and I and and I've become, I guess, as uh, conservationists have become better at killing animals I started I started I started to wonder more and more about the ethics of it um you know for a long time I was writing these kind of little news stories that would say hey they've 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 gotten rats off this island isn't this great or like oh they just got they just shot 80,000 goats in the Galapagos isn't that awesome and the numbers just kept getting bigger and the land masses just kept getting bigger and then I kind of then I went to Australia and I thought holy cannoli like there's a lot of blood in conservation and not just in Australia. Like, killing animals for conservation is a global pastime. We do it in the United States. They do it on islands all over the world. New Zealand has made an industry of it. In fact, if you want to kill something for conservation, you just call New Zealand and ask how to do it, because they are the experts.
0: All of this killing, globally, has led to a small offshoot of conservation researchers who call themselves Compassionate conservationists. This is what brought Emma Maris to Australia.
1: I was staying in this totally bonkers mining town called Opal Mining Town called Cooper Pedy.
0: She was there to meet some researchers.
1: They drove from Sydney, which is a serious road trip. Um, so they pull into this little Opal Mining Town and they're dusty and unshaven and craving vegan pizza. And I have to break it to them <laughs> that there's probably no vegan pizza anywhere.
2: <laughs> Meat on every pizza. For
1: a thousand miles.
0: <laughs> the scientists in question are Ariane Wallach and Adam O'Neill.
1: You know, Ariane uh, is from Israel. She's got this sort of continental, everywhere, international accent. Um, and she's uh, intense and passionate. And she plays the harp and she speaks five languages. And then there's her boyfriend, Adam, who's like this Australian drawl and chain smokes, rolled up cigarettes, and uh, shoots kangaroos to eat the meat. They're such a great couple. Um, They're just perfect. I love them.
0: One thing that I think is important to stress here is just how different Australia's wildlife is from most places.
1: Yeah, I mean, they're the land of marsupials, right? So, um, you know, the, their top predator is the Tasmanian devil. And, and uh, you know, they used to have this thing called the Tasmanian tiger, the thylacine, which was like this marsupial version of a, of a wolf or a of a lion. Um, and then, of course, the whole place is just chock-a-block with kangaroos and wallabies bouncing everywhere. (laughs) Right.
2: It's like literally we're on the moon. Everything's bouncing.
1: Yes. Yeah. You're in some pickup truck and you're driving through the desert and you feel like, okay, I'm in Wyoming. And then you come around the corner and it's like trampoline land. There's these (laughs) ungulates just flying through the air. So it is. It's a very weird place.
0: Anyway, back to our story. Emma and Aryan and Adam all arrive at the field site, which is a huge ranch where the owners have agreed not to shoot the predators, and they start gathering data. They're trying to figure out what native animals are there, what non-native animals are there, and who's eating who. They're also running an experiment to see how sensitive the cute, fuzzy, snackable native species are to predators. But the big picture, the master question they were there to answer, is really about... Australian wild dogs, dingoes.
1: This is her hypothesis. If you leave the dingoes alone, they will just chill out and they will they will control the cats and foxes, keep their numbers down to such an extent that many, if not all, that many of the native small animals will be able to survive. That's her master theory.
0: So as things stand, Australians kill cats because they're invasive and eat the cute, furry native wildlife. But they also kill dingoes, mostly because that's what they've always done. The same way that Americans love to hate coyotes, Australians, especially Australian farmers, love to hate dingoes. But Ariane's trying to prove that if you just leave the dingoes alone...
1: They kill a lot of dingoes in Australia.
0: The dingoes will kill the cats, and so the cute fuzzies will actually do better. So how many dingoes are Australians killing? It's hard to say exactly.
1: So I, I emailed every single state... In Australia uh, I, and territory, I tried the federal government. I tried, um, you know, conservation organizations. I looked through the literature. Like, the answer is that nobody knows because nobody is keeping records. But it's millions.
0: This is what got Emma interested in compassionate conservationists, the researchers who think that conservation biology spends too much time killing the animals they don't want around. They've been in the limelight for finding win wins workarounds to problems that used to be solved by killing some animal or another.
1: Right. So I would say that um, in in some ways this is perhaps the weak spot in their in their current argument is that the examples that they give are cool but they're kind of niche. Um, so for example. Uh, there was a conflict between farmers and elephants, and the elephants were tromping the fields, and the elephants were getting killed. And so somebody invented this elephant fence, which is constructed in part with beehives, because elephants hate bees. Uh, and then the elephants stay away. And the farmers can raise can raise bees and get honey. So that's another, like, slam and win-win. And you love those stories. Everybody loves those stories. Right. I love those stories. Totally. Everybody loves a good win-win.
0: There's also a story about a small island in Australia where they're using guard dogs to protect endangered penguins from foxes instead of killing them.
1: Um, and and then this sort of di- this sort of dingo effect is another example. If it, it turns out to be the case that in that in many places and it probably won't work in all places and it probably won't work for every single native species uh, in Australia, but if it is the case that in many places leaving dingoes alone will reduce the cat and fox menace um you know they're perceived as a menace Ariane wouldn't want me to use that word (laughs) um then great that also seems like it could be a real win-win um but you know i was really interested in pushing her on places where it doesn't seem like you can get a win-win where you really do have to choose between saving the species and renouncing killing So when we were out there in, in the outback, I kept coming back to this I, this question in my own mind, which is, how do you fix Gough Island? Um, it's, it's not a unique place. There's islands like this all over the world where uh, it's a small island. It's a breeding colony for a rare or endangered bird or half a dozen rare and endangered birds. And there's rats on it. And the rats are just wreaking havoc. They eat the eggs. They eat the nestlings. It's really easy to look at the population and see that it's declining. These aren't super, you know, ecology, ecology never stops being interesting because it's so complicated. But if there's anything simple in conservation biology, it's that if you put a bunch of rats on a seabird colony, (laughs) they're going to start eating, eating alive. If you're a
0: traditional conservation biologist, this is an easy question. Rats are abundant and ubiquitous. The albatross are rare and fragile. Obviously, you poison the rats to save the birds. But now a compassionate conservationist...
1: We went back and forth and back and forth about this over, over the fire. ...isn't necessarily willing to do that. And then ultimately, when I pressed her into a corner under duress, she said that she would let the birds die because she sees the rats as... Independent sentient creatures that she does not have the right to just unilaterally massacre, and I am extremely sympathetic to a lot of her view. I, I, it seems, it seems like Australia could at least experiment with killing fewer dingoes in some places, um, and I certainly agree that conservation has gotten into the habit of reaching for guns and traps and poisons, and and I also agree that. The culture around it can sometimes be, um, you know, like there's not a lot of reflection and there's not a lot of discussion about the kind of ethical weight of what's going on. There's just people going out and doing it. But I think this is where I part ways with her because I just don't think there's – I think ultimately letting those chicks get eaten alive by rats, that's also on us because we're the ones who put the rats on the island. So – their deaths are on our hands just as surely as the rats would be if we poisoned them. So I would rather poison the rats because at least that way we can also save a species. And I think that matters. I think that's really important.
0: Now, here's what makes this really interesting to think about Ariane's ethic is based on the idea that animals are not ethical actors. Only humans can do things that are ethically right or wrong. If this has you snorting disdainfully, you might be a consequentialist or utilitarian, someone who believes that things are right or wrong based on the outcome. For example, this question, is it better to kill an invasive cat with poison or let it be eaten by a dingo?
1: The consequentialist theories, as the name suggests, They only care about the consequences. Is the cat alive or is the cat dead?
0: But here's the rub. If animals can commit unethical acts, and if what we care about is creating a more ideal, more moral world, it can lead you to some strange places.
1: I think that there's some, arguably not a great fit for the natural world because there's something sort of deeply mismatched between the love that conservationists bear to the natural world and to the sort of biodiversity in general and the fact that the natural world and the complexity, uh, the sort of food chains that make biodiversity so complex and interesting are built on suffering and blood and death. Like it's all just people. It's, it's Nature is a bunch of animals and plants pursuing each other and eating each other. If you take all the pain and suffering out of nature, it collapses like a house of cards. You end up with a bunch of animals in some sort of weird future zoo all being fed soil and green. <laughs> you can't have you can't have a, a, a kind of a functioning ecosystem without Pain and death. I was sitting there. I, my
2: my head went the other way. I was like, I was like, well, obviously the only way that you can take out all the pain and suffering would be to just get rid of all the animals. Right. Um, just like I did not em- envisage Soylent Green. I, <laughs>
1: <laughs> well, there's some far out philosophy papers out there where people who are hardcore utilitarians try to solve this this one, and they end up in some extremely weird places.
2: <laughs> right. Right. And what's left over is not what we love about nature.
1: Right. And, you know, and I, I think that that mismatch is actually worth exploring in depth. Like, why do we love this thing so much that's built from pain and blood? Like, what's up with that? I mean, I love it. I, I You love it. Your listeners love it. We go out into it, this world of, of incredible beauty and diversity that's all built on consumption and death and blood. What's what's wrong with us, Sam?
2: What's wrong
0: with us? Well, let's talk about it after a break. Welcome back to Outside In. I'm Sam Evans-Brown. Now, the thing that is so impressive about Emma Maris is that she wrote about this question of how ethical is it for conservation biologists to kill animals to save other animals back in September? But she didn't leave it there.
1: You know, I, I have the good fortune – well, it's not always a good fortune to be married to a philosopher. Um, <laughs> they're very logical, and so sometimes domestic arguments um, can can get like – you know, he's like, well, you're assuming the antecedent or whatever. And so we talk about all this stuff. Over the dinner table. Emma and her husband thought, wouldn't
0: it be interesting to pose a series of hypothetical questions about killing and conservation and publish them in a place where the people doing this work might actually read them? Because most conservation biologists, they don't have much time to think about this stuff. What are their core ethical values? That's not what's in their scientific journals. The first one of these hypotheticals you've already heard. The only way she modified the rats and seabirds scenario was to imagine that there are exactly 100 rats and exactly 100 seabirds on the island. So whatever the choice, an equal number of beings die. What what were the other two?
1: So we did one about oiled birds. Mark Beckhoff, who's another uh, compassionate conservationist, um, had once said in one of his pieces that um, if there's an oil spill and there's a bunch of people who are cleaning birds, you shouldn't only clean the birds that are rare. You should clean all the birds because birds are alive and they have thoughts and they're important. Um, and And sort of on the face of that, that seems obvious. Like, yeah, clean all the birds, man. Um, but what if you have limited resources? What if you can't clean all the birds? Um, so we constructed this hypothetical that asks, well, so let's say that the rare birds are just larger or they, they, they're they more ornery or something like that. Uh, they're more difficult to clean. So you have an oil spill and you can clean 100 common birds and save 100 common birds. Or you can clean and save. We're also assuming that the ones you clean actually live, which is not always true. Um, uh, or you can clean and save 50 endangered birds. So this forces you to, to kind of put your money where your mouth is about whether you ultimately think that the numbers of animals that are alive and happy is more important or whether their rarity and the sort of biodiversity that they carry in, in their genes is kind of uh, overrules that and makes them somehow more valuable.
0: The last one is about CRISPR, genetic engineering. And again, this is based on
1: the real world. Um, There's a quest to use that to make sterile rodents. And this would be an alternative way to deal with your rat-infested island or maybe someday your cat-infested Australia. Um, Instead of shooting them or poisoning them, something that hurts or that's unpleasant... Um, you just simply introduce these sterility genes, and a few generations later, there's no rat babies or there's no cat babies, and the population just sort of dies out. However, many people who self-identify as animal lovers or or environmentalists are pretty skeptical of genetic engineering and are definitely sketched out by the idea of releasing genetically modified animals with the intent to have their genes replace all of the wild ones in the world. So the third case, uh, I don't know why we use a lizard in this case. (laughs) Mix it up. Um, Lizards need love too. Uh, We (laughs) imagine that there was this lizard on this island and uh, it was going extinct because it was getting eaten by cats and you could either kill the cats or you could let the lizard go extinct or you could genetically engineer the lizard, not the cat, but the lizard to be able to uh, be smart enough to outsmart the cat and live, live another day.
0: Emma wanted the gene drive to be in the lizard because she wanted it to hang around in the environment, to not die out.
1: So it's actually potentially sort of more ideologically challenging to alter an, an, an animal, a species, an entire species permanently that you want to stick around.
0: So did you did you hear back from
2: Ariane about about these? Did she <laughs> did she think through them?
1: She did. I was kind of shocked because she, um, in a way, you know, she did not like how much. I, I don't think she liked how much I pushed her to to answer my island, my island hypothetical when we were in the field because she kept saying, "Well, you know, life is more complicated than that," and she's right. Um, but then when I sent her the paper, like 15 minutes later, she wrote back with how she would rule on all three of them I was
2: <laughs> it was awesome minutes, huh? yeah yeah I mean so, I don't so... know
1: exactly it was like fast um so she said that she would she would not kill the non-native predators on the island to save the birds I knew that one because that's basically what she told me in Australia she would save the hundred common birds because they're individuals and she would uh, genetically engineer the lizard so that it could live oh
2: <gasps> That's a shocker.
1: I know. And then she said that she, while she's at it, we should genetically engineer ourselves to be better people. Um, <laughs> which she isn't the first person to suggest that. There's actually, yeah. you know, there's a there's all this sort of theorists about talking about cognitive enhancement of the human species. And then uh, Julian Savalescu and, and a colleague wrote a book about moral enhancement, the notion that we should actually genetically engineer ourselves to be more ethical.
0: Our footprint, as humans, is everywhere. There isn't a square inch of this earth that we haven't affected in some way or the other, and most of those effects are quite profound. What's the right way to deal with that? Clearly, it's a tough question to answer.
1: (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> did I just blow your mind? These are,
2: these are these ideas are so new. They're so new to me. I don't even know what to say. Like,
1: <laughs> would you undergo the procedure? Yeah. Would you have your your cells be modified so that your children would be more ethical?
2: Well, it's so funny. Like like the first thing you think is is like, man, it would be great if everybody else did that. Like. <laughs> Like, I'm fine, but all those other people.
1: (laughs) Well, then, I mean, my thought too is like, I don't want to be the first person to do it because then my kids will be like suckers. suckers. Like, everyone else will be like taking advantage of them. Like, incapable of telling a white lie.
0: This episode of Outside In was produced by me, Sam Evans-Brown, with help from Taylor Quimby and Jimmy Gutierrez. Erica Janick is our executive producer. Maureen McMurray is the director of cross-promotional peer-reviewed philosophy literature. If you like this story, Emma's reporting was made possible by the Atlantic's Life Up Close series, which you should totally... Check out—it's really, really great. And don't forget to head over to our website, outsideinradio.org, where you can see all of our sweet podcast swag, including some thank you gifts that require bicycles and perhaps travel. We're tweeting and posting to Facebook about this stuff as well. Find us at Outside In Radio. Music in this episode came from Blue Dot Sessions. Our theme music is by Breakmaster Cylinder. Outside In is a production of New Hampshire Public Radio.